the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Anyone who is navigating grief often feels like there's no end to the pain. Life as they know it is over, and there doesn't feel like there's a way out. Today's guest, Karen Johnson's professional career as a federal judge came to an abrupt halt when she lost her 27-year-old son to a heroin overdose. After that, Karen did the unexpected. She quit her lifetime appointment, sold her house with all her belongings, and traveled the world, finding a healing practice along the way. Karen joins us today to share her journey of transformation. Karen is a graduate of Georgetown Law Center, a former Fulbright Scholar in Afghanistan, and she holds master's degrees in public health and public and international affairs. She's a retired federal administrative law judge who practiced for more than 30 years. She's also a former U.S. Army officer. Karen is the author of the book, Living Grieving, Using Energy Medicine to Alchemize Grief and Loss. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Joan. Thank you for having me. So, Karen, I, I want to begin by saying that I'm so sorry for your loss. I've experienced tremendous loss in my life as well. So I understand some of what you went through, and I know that a lot of our listeners understand that pain as well. Tell us about your son and what it is that you experienced at that time. So, um, you know, my 27-year-old son, Ben, was struggling like many young men. He wasn't an addict. Um, but he was really struggling in life and trying to start a business and deciding to go back to school and just a lot of different things. So <clears throat> I knew that I needed to have a big conversation with him. But I went on vacation first, and I thought, I'll, I'll deal with this when I get back. I knew that he was struggling and, and hurting. But um, So I was in South Korea, actually, when I got the call from a detective that said, hey, are you at home? And I said, no, I'm in South Korea. Why? It's about your son. What? Did he have an accident? What happened never occurred to me. He said, no, I'm sorry. He's, 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 he died. And I said, from what? Of course, it's a big shock and all of that that you can imagine. Um, and so it took me a really long time to get back to South Korea. It's like 13 and a half hours, different time zone. So the next morning, I was able to get a flight out. And, um, and he appeared to me right in front of me, just like his regular grinning self. And then kind of faded away. And I frantically called my ex-husband and said, you got to contact the ME. I think he's alive. I think he's trying to get out. I think, you know, all the things that you think, you know. And so um, the ME checked and said, no, I'm sorry, he's gone. And so that was really the beginning of sometimes death is a doorway. It was the beginning of a spiritual path for me um, that started with me seeing my son and wanting to contact him more and wanting to engage with him. And I ended up finding an evolutionary astrologer who said, gosh, I had another woman who had a reading like yours that became a shaman. And I'm like, a shaman? Wow, never heard about that in my left-wing world in Washington, D.C., <laughs> hanging out with judges and all sorts of other people. And so three weeks later, I found myself on a plane to the to start classes with the four winds. And, and that was the beginning of really a whole transformative life for me. Why do you think that happened to you? And, and, you know, I ask that because I'm a similar type of person. I came from a corporate background, very structured life. And 
Yet over the past 10 years, after going through so much pain and loss, I've started to understand the type of work that you do and, and, and really believe in something I knew nothing about more than a decade ago. So why do you think yeah. this happened to you? Oh, gosh, I think it was a gift. I mm-hmm. think it was a gift from my son. And I think it was a gift from God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. I think it it um, it it was one of those opportunities for me to have a spiritual path that I didn't have. And I think that the destiny, his destiny here on earth was complete. And my destiny was to learn how to live and grow without him and find that journey of creating a new life out of the ashes of the old one that honors our loved one. Do you think that that is really what saved you having that belief? I lost a brother when he was 14, and my parents basically died with my brother. They continued living, but there was a big part of them that that went with him. Do you think the way that you started to be able to view this saved you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we change our perception, we change our beliefs, we turn to change our life. And I think seeing him and feeling him and knowing that there is actually life after death was, was not something I believed in before that. So knowing that there is life after death and there's a whole big life after death allowed me to um, actually shift my perspective. And then I believe, you know, it really helped me to write the book. And much of the book is downloaded to me um, over time. And so it's a way for people to go on this journey through grieving, through, um, and it's our own journey, and it takes as long as it's going to take. And what you're talking about is so common. People become very stuck in their grief, and they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know what to do or what to become. A lot of books will tell you, you need to go to a mo- on a move, go to see a movie, or go on a date, or go forward, or do this, or do that. Mostly people say, I'm not ready. I can't. And so my book is about how can we find ways to become unstuck from our grief. And there's 16 practices in my book that talk about things like non-judgment, non-suffering, non-attachment, practicing beauty, <clears throat> that allow us to find out where we're stuck, then become lighter for more practices, and then awaken to this from the nightmare, really, Mm-hmm. And then create a new life, create a new life from the ashes of the old. And so it's a long, it's a process, but it's our own process. And we each are different, stuck in a different place. You were able to develop this from traveling. And back then, when you made the decision to basically give up the life that you knew, how did you come to that decision? I mean, you were a federal judge, you were an army officer. This doesn't sound like someone who would make that type of decision. No, not at all. Um I had begun to um, do some shamat work with shamanism and take a few classes. And and I realized ultimately that my life as a federal judge just didn't fulfill me anymore. I just, I had been thrown out of the matrix, so to speak, with my son's death. And so nothing made sense anymore. And I felt like I just couldn't do both things. I couldn't be a shaman and be a federal judge in Washington, D.C. I mean, if people found out that, it would look bad. It could come back and people say, oh, she's, you know, her decisions are mm-hmm. are at risk because of this. So for me, it was like I just had to make a choice. I had to decide I was going to do something different. And once I decided and once I looked into how I might make this happen financially, it was like everything just fell into place. And so without a mortgage and without car payments and without all the things that come with owning a home and all those things and working, uh, I was able to travel the world for two and a half years and discover a lot, meet with spiritual leaders in Africa and India and Bangladesh and Brazil, Chile, all over the world to find out what is this? What are we supposed to do with death and grief? How are we supposed to get through it. You know, our fast-paced society is one of get over it, get through it, move on. Well, most people can't do that with grief. Grief is different. I like when you say that you liken it to catching the flu because we think we're just going to get over this, but it's not. We're not sick. There's no cure. You can't medicate it away. Right, right. And and part of that comes from the DSM and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 
has added a new diagnosis for extreme grief, right? And so people want to have it medicated away, turn us into zombies. But what if there's another way? What if there's a way to look at grief from a different perspective? And so everything in my book has to do with creating ceremony, sitting quietly, sitting with a candle and a notebook um, and a pie pan because we're going to burn what we write so that we can be radically honest, so that we can get out of this physical realm and upload to our ceremonial brain, the neocortex. And in the neocortex, things begin to move like a feather blowing in the wind instead of at the physical realm where we're dragging things along in a heavy, heavy, heavy way. It's really to deal with that energy of grief. So totally the energy. We know that other life circumstances like parent, becoming a parent, becoming, uh, getting married. We know that has energy that's transformative. It's life-changing. But what our society kind of avoids is the life-saving energy of grief. If we can tap into that energy instead of becoming stuck and actually almost becoming, um, you know, it, it becomes almost a thing, you know, it becomes like we can't move, um, with our grief, if we can tap into the energy of it and begin to move along, then we can create a new life um, out of the ashes of the old that honors our loved one. And I think that's the big point because people sometimes feel they don't deserve to. Their loved one is gone. There's nothing to live for. Um, they 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 shouldn't live for it. It would be dishonoring them to move on. But that actually the reverse is true. We do everything possible to bury that energy, to deny that energy that it doesn't exist because we don't want to deal with it. We just want to pretend in some way that we're not feeling what we're feeling. Yeah, for sure. And, and society kind of encourages that, like the grieving widow, the grieving spouse. And, um, you know, it, it's that heavy energy, like we're showing the world how much we loved our loved one and or showing our loved one who's on the other side. And there's no win in grieving. So if you grieve too long, then people say, oh, she really needs help. If you don't grieve long enough, oh, she must not have cared. So you might as well take your own journey and grieve as long as you feel that it's necessary to grieve. Do you think that it's possible to make peace with those regrets that you just spoke about? I think it is. There's so many times we get caught up in shame, blame, guilt. And judgment. And so that's why if you work through exercises like, who are you judging? Who's judging you in this whole thing? Or who was judging you? Or who who were you judging? I found out I was actually even judging my son. Deep inside of me, I was really angry with him for for doing this, for trying heroin and going to a party, getting drunk and trying heroin. I was furious, right? So, and judging myself. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. And so many stories we tell each other. Oh, I should have done this. Um, I should have made them go to the doctor. I should have done this differently. It was maybe a different school, maybe different friends. I should have moved. So we have all these stories rattling around in our house, our mind. And the heavy role of being the grieving, the widow, this, the grieving mother, what a heavy role. And so as we release them to the fire, right? So shamans work with fire. And and this is very common. So if we go to a church or we go to a temple and they have a place where we can light a candle for our loved ones, ah, we know that our prayers are being carried to the by the smoke, to the universe, to God, to whatever we believe in. So we're going to work with that concept of using smoke, of saying what we want to release. I'm going to release this and burning it and opening our hearts to new ways of thinking, believing, seeing. And that's part of the experience. It's like breathing in and breathing out, breathing in fresh new air, breathing out the old stale. So we're breathing, we're allowing the smoke to take all our old ways of judging and suffering and attachment and open our hearts to new ways. Karen, what are one or two of your favorite practices from your book, Living Grieving? I tell you, my biggest one, and I love this practicing beauty, the beauty way. And what does that mean? So what I like to have people do is um, put a magnet or a piece of paper with a magnet on their refrigerator, practice beauty, and do one thing for yourself every day. One thing, a a piece of candy, a flower, um, a sunrise, a sunset, 
an art show, whatever it is, but get into practice of doing something for yourself that you love, that brings beauty to your life every day. Because we get so lost in our grief that we're digging deeper and deeper the neural networks for shame, blame, grief, um, despair, hopelessness. So we want to begin building new neural networks that have to do with connecting with beauty and bringing beauty back into our lives because sometimes we've just lost it. Some people can lose it when they're a caregiver, when they've got children who are in the throes of um, addiction, um, and every day they don't know if they're going to live or die. And so we lose that beauty way. We lose our our ability to really tap into it. So we want to redo that. We want to reconnect with beauty. And I think that's really important because it encourages us to practice self-care because that's the one thing that we forget about when we're going through grief. We don't take care of ourselves, and that's really something that's vitally important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, one thing, you know, maybe it's a massage, maybe it's a facial, whatever it is, one thing. And when you get in the habit, and I always have people say, I want you to do it for 30 days. And by the time you do it for 30 days, it becomes a new habit, a new way of being that allows us to see things in a different way. Karen, how can family members and friends support someone who's grieving? I mean, I I know when I was going through a lot of my loss and and losing my family members, you kind of feel yourself that there's a time limit on it. Like, I should feel better by now. And people kind of say things that make you feel that way. So what is the best approach that a loved one can take to help someone navigate grief? So the people that helped me the most were people who just sat with me, made a cup of tea, said, how can I help? What can I do? And without judgment, without advice, all those old platitudes, oh, you know, he's in a better place. Oh, forget that. Mm. Don't say those things. Right. <laughs> in a better place. Right. All these things that we say because we don't know what to say. So what if we don't say anything? What if we just sit, allow people to grieve and respect their journey? I think somehow we've lost respect for the bereaved. In other cultures like the Lakota, the bereaved are considered closer to spirit. And so people want to be around them because they know that they have this beautiful connection with spirit. But we kind of see people as a pariah, like, "Uh uh-oh, here she is. Oh, it's going to be a bummer. Oh, this is going to be heavy. Oh, here we go again. Right? So... I think we have to relax our attitudes about that and allow people to grieve in their own time, in their own way, and just allow people to, to, to talk, to grieve, to bring them into events. So, you know, sometimes we want to say, well, we want to talk. Let's not talk about that at this birthday party. What? Talk about the elephant in the room? Let's not talk about that. Right? right. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because we, we, we want to make ourselves feel better, but what about right. the person who's actually grieving? We forget about them. Why do you think certain cultures have been able to maintain seeing the beauty in, in various life experiences, and, and we don't? Like you said, we treat people like, oh, here she comes. This is going to be a downer. Right. Like, Why do you think we've lost that? Because we're so afraid of death and dying. I mean, if you get boil it all down to it, most of us have a terrible fear of death. We know that we are all going to die, right? I mean, nobody's come out of this life alive yet. And yet we want to forget about that. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And when someone dies and someone's grieving, it kind of brings it right in our face, like our mortality. And a lot of people have to face, you know, our belief system. Do you believe in life after death? I didn't. And then I did. Right. So we can change our beliefs. Um, What if we don't die to everything? What if we have a beautiful experience on the other side? So a lot of people who have had near death experiences have written many, many books about near death experiences and find that there's a lot more on the other side than what we think. And so what we've been told about heaven and hell, oh, my gosh, I might go to hell. Oh, wait. So nobody we don't want to we want to avoid all that discussion. But what if it's different? What if it's not that? The book is Living Grieving, Using Energy Medicine to Alchemize Grief and Loss. If you'd like to get more information about Karen and her work, you can visit karenjohnson.net. Karen, in our final moments, what is the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I 
to know that we are hardwired for transformation. Um, we have this innate desire for transformation. And when we don't transform our grief and it becomes stuck inside of us, it really can be harmful. So many of my clients and people I see, if they have immune disorders, cancers, just various kind of illnesses, if I, we go back far enough, we find unresolved grief and loss. So I really encourage people to work with their grief and loss and not avoid it. Not say, oh, I'm just going to stomp this down. I'm going to put a lid on it. I'm going to just pretend everything is okay. Because it can pop out, up later in many, many ways that are not um, good for our wellness and health. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. So many people today are experiencing the pain of grief, and your story and your book really offers us hope, so I'm so happy that you're here to share this with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Are you a hardworking, high-achieving, independent, successful woman? But there's one area in your life where you really want to be successful, and it just hasn't happened yet. I'm Odette Coronel, Certified Life and Relationship Coach. I work with women just like you. I can help you create a long-lasting, meaningful, satisfying relationship with your life partner by using my signature life method and reigniting the spark within you. Visit OdetteCoronel.com and book a free session with me today. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. Dr. Mohammed Biden, a Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon and the medical director of the Mayo Clinic Neurosurgical Registry. Dr. Biden is the author of Back and Neck Health. He is here today to discuss ways to prevent and correct back and neck pain. Welcome, Dr. Biden. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for um, having me today. Doctor, you say that back and neck pain is among the top reasons that people see their doctor. What are the most common types of back and neck pain? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, so thank you. It's absolutely, you know, 80% of people in the course of their lifetime will have very serious back or neck pain such that it necessitates medical attention. So it's something that's very, very prevalent. The vast majority of people will experience it. The number one reason to see your doctor is back pain. The number three reason is neck pain. So it's two of the top five reasons uh, to see your doctor. And the causes uh, can be, you know, a variety of things. So it could be something traumatic. It could be something uh, that's uh, degenerative or, or, you know, sort of arthritis and ongoing arthritis. It could be work-related uh, injury. It could be, you know, a fall, a car accident. Um, so there's really a number of uh, different uh, causes, and then the treatments differ based on those different causes, of course. And what are the usual ways that we treat this type of pain? So uh, a few things. First, the most common treatments are uh, non-operative. And so many people, you know, often think that, uh, you know, you have a back issue, it's going to mean I need surgery. But no, in fact, the most common uh, treatments are going to be non-surgical, non-operative treatments. And so that's very important to keep in mind. And and some of those things are going to be things like physical therapy, uh, time and rest, uh, sleep hygiene, uh, maintaining uh, good weight. Uh, uh, injections, acupuncture, chiropractic care, 
and then um, if you do have to have surgery, you know, those, th- those areas have advanced very uh, dramatically. And we have many more options today than we did even five, 10 years ago related to minimally invasive surgery, related to, to robotic surgery. And so there's many sort of newer uh, options and treatment modalities that are available today than what we had before. Doctor, you mentioned that injury can be a cause of, of back and neck pain, and that's what we usually think is our cause. But what about lifestyle? What about stress and worry in our mental state? What role does that have in pain? Yeah, lifestyle is a very important driver and component of this. And so, um, uh, in fact, you know, many stress it can be a major cause and propellant of pain. Uh, poor sleep hygiene, poor sleep, uh, poor sleep posture. So you're, you know, you're sleeping with your neck overly flexed or overly rotated um, versus uh, having good uh, sleep posture. All of those things can exacerbate uh, back and neck pain. Is it a good idea to examine that before you begin a medication protocol or even surgery? Should we be looking at the way we're living yeah. first? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, and, and that's why, you know, things normally with the back or neck don't get to surgery. Uh, the vast majority of things can be managed on operatively. But, but absolutely, some of those preventative uh, things that we can do, uh, adjustments in terms of lifestyle and how uh, people approach their lives, those are very important things that could be done um, with back or neck and could help you know, help resolve the issue as well. Does dehydration play a role in pain? Yes, so dehydration can impact things systemically. And so if you're uh, dehydrated, you could feel more tired, you could feel more sort of aches and pains. So yeah, absolutely. I think being well hydrated and preserving good hydration is very important uh, for uh, the back and neck. What role does exercise have in recovery? How does that help us? Well, so, right, so this is an area, we go through this in a lot of detail. So, A, if you have pain related to movement and exercise, then you should stop doing those to allow that muscle to heal so that you can go back to doing it eventually, but, you know, we, we, you don't want to exacerbate the injury. Um, having said that, there's other types of back and neck issues where a little bit of physical therapy is going to be very helpful to you as long as it doesn't cause pain. But what you'll find in the book, and this was one of the reasons that we put it together, you know, there's, multi, there's Mayo Clinic guides to everything, to a number of different diseases. This is our first book for a Mayo Clinic guide to back and neck pain. And the reason that we did it is we, we saw that there was sort of a big gap out there. There wasn't great comprehensive information on how to manage this. Two, it's so common. Everybody's going to have a problem with it. And three, you know, not everybody can be treated at Mayo, although we want to be as accessible as possible. And so we wanted to provide our top expert guidance um, uh, and, and treatment modalities so that people can understand them and see them, um, even if they're not, you know, directly at Mayo Clinic. And so some of the things that we go through are the exact posture, the way to sit, the way to stand, the exact exercises that you should and shouldn't do, when you should and shouldn't do them. And those are things that often we only provide when you physically come to Mayo, but we wanted to provide them in this book given how common uh, some of the problems around this are. Doctor, in general, when someone injures his or her back or neck area, what is the, the best initial home treatment? Is it taking an NSAID like an Advil and then ice? So the most common the most common injuries are going to be a specific muscle related, and you're going to have some inflammation probably around that muscle. In that setting, I think it's fine to do rest, uh, to take an anti-inflammatory like an aspirin or an ibuprofen or an naproxen, um, and to put some ice um, on the back. I think all of those are perfectly fine treatments. The things that would make me think something more severe or concerning is happening are things like pain that goes from the back into the leg. That would make me think maybe there's a nerve root that's being impinged. Weakness of the leg or of the ankle, that would make me more concerned. Um, back pain that's so excruciating that you can't stand or walk. And, and those are a variety of things that, you know, I think would warrant, you know, calling your doctor and telling them. Um, but if it's very specific, you know, you can pinpoint it. 
to a specific muscle, then I think it's very appropriate to get some rest, uh, take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, and try some ice. I, I think those would be very appropriate treatments for that. And doctor, where can our listeners go to get more information? So the book is available um, at Amazon.com, at Target.com, at Walmart.com. Um, you'll be able to uh, find it, you know, at, at most of those retailers, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, so any online book retailer uh, will have it. Dr. Biden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and for having me today. We'll be right back. WNYM Hackensack. <music> back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. In order to challenge yourself, grow stronger, and become better, you need to step out of your comfort zone and take risks. Anytime you consider doing this, your brain will try to convince you to play it safe. Even when your thoughts lack a rational basis, you may allow your anxiety to prevail. Then the fear holds you back. Today's guest, Angie Morgan, received a master class in how to take risks when she signed up for the Marines. She joins us to discuss how we can develop our wrist muscle. Angie served as a Marine Corps officer, and she's been a special advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She's a New York Times bestselling author and co-founder of LeadStar. Her new book is Bet on You, How to Win with Risk. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, it's so good to be with you today. Thanks for having me. So Angie, joining the Marines and then becoming an officer has enabled you to face many fears and to take many risks. When you were presented with those opportunities in the past, how did you feel? Were you scared? Were you anxious? (laughs) I think that there's a lot of, um, certainly when you think about the Marine Corps, a lot of intimidation that goes into that choice. And then you think, too, about just some of the physical risks that you'll be asked to do and participate in in the future. And it was really helpful to you to think of it as that wasn't the only risk that you had to take, right? There was, you know, moving away. There was, you know, countering different, you know, you know, people, learning a new value system in order to thrive in that organization. So I think often we tend to think of risk as very one-dimensional, when in reality it's multidimensional. And I'm really fortunate. I didn't know what I was getting into entirely when I went in the Marines. But when I left, I had this really important skill set that I was able to apply to all areas of my life. So everything that you just described, any one of those things could have caused someone to stop, you know, full stop, not do this. What did you do to overcome those feelings so that you could move forward? The Marine Corps actually was the organization that just helped me realize how powerful our minds are over our perception of our abilities and capabilities. And when you go through training, you really learn a lot more about yourself and what you're actually capable of. And so really breaking through some of those mental barriers was just a really key thing for me, especially early on in my career. And so having that mindset allowed me, when I left active duty and started working in sales and inevitably started my business, just really remind myself that, you know, our mind limits us. But when you really start to think about risk as a skill and how to overcome some of those, I will call them artificial barriers that our mind puts on us, it just helps you allow you to see the potential of the situation. I always hear people say, well, I can't do this because I might fail. They have this fear of failure. And and I always say, well, what is failure? And what does that really look like? Because to me, when something doesn't happen the way I want it to, I, I just have learned to say to myself, okay, that didn't work out as planned, but what can I learn from this? How can I do it differently? So I think we just let this this fear of failure, whatever that may mean, I, I just think we let that get in the way. Joan, I couldn't be more in agreement with you. And it's funny too, like if I put, you know, 100 people in a room right now and ask them, what did you learn more from life, your successes or your failures? Hands would shoot up when they talked about failures, right? Because those are some of our greatest, most powerful and profound learning points. And then you ask, you know, the follow-on questions, what did you gain from that experience? And people's examples are really rich. And so I think sometimes we think about failure as this negative thing, but failure is only really fatal if you stop trying, if you didn't learn from the experience. So we shouldn't be afraid of failure. And our mind has this amazing ability to, to catastrophize what failure could be. 
I have a friend who is in the process of leaving this executive director role in a nonprofit so she could be in a consultant. And failure to her is homeless on the streets of Chicago. And I keep telling her, you know, don't you think we're going to stop you, you know, your friends at some point <laughs> before you get there? So, yeah, like, you know, true failure is you might stumble. Success might need, might not be what it really set out to be, but that's not really failure. That's learning. Right. And, you know, I had to learn. I'm one of these type A people where, you know, I have my expectations of how things are. And I love saying supposed to be, which is how nothing mm-hmm. ever turns out. And so I always had my expectations of how it was supposed to be. And then I always had this stri- this need to strive for perfection, that things had to be done the right way. So, you know, living my life with the supposed to be's and the right way can really keep you stuck. And, and those are things that I needed to learn how to overcome. Do you think that those are big players for a lot of other people as well? Oh, absolutely. We write a lot about perfectionism perfectionism in the book because that often is what halts people in from pursuing their dreams. They wait for the stars, the moon, sun to align before they can take action, which may, you know, not be an ideal time for them. And so then again they'll delay even further. So we in our book talk about if you want to really perfect something, perfect your response to imperfection. How is that? But get really comfortable with understanding that not everything is going to turn out as you hope it would be. Sometimes and more times not, it's going to be better. We can't predict the future, but we can plan, right, for that one foot in front of the other in front of the other. And that's what we try to advocate through Bet on You and through our work with LeadStar and our leadership coaching space is just get started. It doesn't have to be big. In fact, risks done wrong are these epic, bold strokes. Risk done right is incremental change, one small step followed by the other, and pretty soon you're building the muscle. And I think Nike had the best campaign slogan ever when they say, just do it. I mean, it's brilliant. Just do it. (laughs) It's funny. I remember when that slogan first came out, and you're right, it was so inspiring because, again, there's people who will talk and plan and dream and all these things, but the people who are out there making it happen are just doing it. Right. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? And, you know, the funny thing, again, the worst thing that can happen probably isn't even a possibility. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you you learn and you discover that maybe it wasn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. And that's okay. But you tried and you can go to sleep soundly at night knowing that you're not afraid to pursue your dreams. Do you believe strong leaders are the biggest risk takers? That depends. (laughs) So in in the work that I do with Lead Star and the first two books that we wrote about, um, a lot of it had to do like, you know, spark and leading from the front. Leadership is about influencing others and inspiring others through your behavior. So it's not about that job title. It's about behavior. And I've got phenomenal leaders who do, you know, do a really great job of setting an example and developing their character and being accountable and all these things. And yet they're still a little bit afraid to take a risk, but they're on a really good, comfortable path. And you said it in your introduction, you know, getting out of your comfort zone is still hard for people, especially people who are just so comfortable and, you know, feel pretty good about the path they're on. And through my conversations with many just really talented leaders, I know that they've got a dream. I know that there's something that they want to do. And they're just a little bit afraid to start it because it's unconventional in their world just to, you know, do that side hustle or, change industries and careers on the spot or even ask for a promotion or even within their business. I know that we prize in organizations some of these entrepreneurial opportunities, start a new business unit, just a little bit scared. And so the great thing, though, with risk is that we can learn how to take risk. It's a skill set. Right. And to take a smart risk. So if you're thinking about starting your own business, maybe you begin doing it part time or, you know, there are ways that you can mitigate the damages that can occur from taking that risk. It's a smart way to do it. Yeah, great great point. I was, you know, my husband and I recently, we wanted to sell our house and move closer to, he owns a a coffee shop and move closer to the business because we found ourselves on the road all the time. And selling the house and moving seemed like such a big proposition. It was so intimidating, but start somewhere. We just started talking to real estate agents. And then, you know, before you know it, we're packing boxes, but it didn't have to all be done overnight. And education, you know, educating yourself, that really does empower you to take those smart risks. 
hundred percent. We write about the value of guides in Bet on You, people in our life who can help fill in the blanks on how to go about achieving our dreams. We have, you know, three people, types of people in our life. We call them, you know, our champions, you know, the people who are just going to be in our cheering section. And maybe the champions, too, are people who are doing what we want to do and trying to, you know, connect with them to say, hey, how did you get started? Tell me your path. Like That's a really valuable experience, a secondhand experience that you can take on. We also have big stagers, you know, people who, um, probably like you, Joe, you know, people who get to share their thought leadership and influence. We may not know them directly, but we can dial in and, and hear and get, get that motivation and inspiration and encouragement. We also have some of those no-choosers, you know, people in our life, family members, friends, colleagues, people that we didn't necessarily, with the exception of a couple people, have a direct hand in, but people are strong, but we can get inspiration. So education is certainly, it's look at the internet, get books, but we've got people all around us who are living some of the dreams we'd like to pursue. Talking to them is a huge piece. Angie, can you give our listeners a few strategies that can help them develop their wrist muscle? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I find that one of the best things anyone can do starts off with just dreaming a little better. So really coming into a space where you can clarify what is something that you really haven't achieved yet, but you've always wanted to do. I find that we're so busy and in the moments when we could be dreaming, like on a park bench or in a waiting room, we're looking at our phone and distracted by these kind of external influences. So start to like put down the phone, think bigger, and really just turn inward to really understand what's missing or what could be better in my life. We also think about kaleidoscope dreaming. So trying to think about different areas of your life, not just career, but what are you doing for fun? How are you serving your community? Um, what are you doing with your family? Like, what is there anything in your life that's in a state of neglect that you really need to pay attention to that could help round off your life and make you a little bit more balanced and feeling harmonious? harmonious. Second thing is really just start to identify people who are doing the things that um, you want to be doing. And it's funny, I think we sometimes get intimidated by asking people to share their life story to us and how they went about achieving their success. But for the person you're asking, most people want to help. Most people love to talk about themselves. Most people want to share um, their story and their secrets. So you're actually giving them a gift. Sometimes it's turning that around a little bit, knowing that you might feel intimidated, but you're giving the other person an opportunity to help. And most people want to help you. Angie, you said it's important to recognize the people that surround us, the, the people that cheer us on or, or can hold us back. When I mm -hmm. wanted to start this work many years ago, this was a huge risk for me. This was so out of the realm of anything I ever imagined mm -hmm. for myself. And I had a lot of people who were close to me who were mocking me, telling me I was crazy, saying it was ridiculous. What do you say to someone who wants to take a risk, believes in it, but he or she is surrounded by people who are belittling what they want to do or, or you know, speaking <laughs> negatively about it, trying to hold them back. Oh, my gosh, Joan, I can, I, I can relate right away to that statement, 100%. When I started my, you know, speaking and writing business back in 2004, I certainly had those eye rollers like, okay, I guess this is what Angie's <laughs> doing next. <laughs> I was middle-aged, so they were really thinking I was crazy. <laughs> It is funny, right? Because, you know, going back, when we think about risk-taking, I always like to tell people that we take risks all the time. And you think about getting married or going to college, those are like crazy risks if you think about it. There's only a 50-50% chance of success in those risks. Yet, when we take those risks, people pass us, you know, gifts and parties and things like that. And think about then the later on in your life, the risks that you want to take. They're, the chances for success are probably far greater, but people are going, oh, no, I don't know about this. And I often think it's really because the older that we get, the more nuanced our dreams are. They're more reflective of independent experiences that people in our life just don't have access to. Like we can understand, right, the concept of getting married because a lot of people do that. So again, we cheer and get excited. But starting your side hustles, 
starting, you know, a podcast, starting an Etsy business. Probably not a lot of people in your life are doing those things. And so they are probably going to be a little bit more skeptical of it. And they aren't really sure, right? They haven't been inside your brain. They haven't seen your vision. And you haven't maybe articulated your vision fully to them. So oftentimes their skepticism is probably just their lack of exposure to what it is that you're trying to do. And well, you got to manage them, right? Or well, least, the things that you were just yeah, listing, Angie, the, the, the one big thing that kept going through my mind, many of us have children. We don't know what we're doing when we have a baby. That is probably the <laughs> biggest risk you can take in your life, and yet you do it. So maybe when we're oh, about to take a risk, we should think, well, I had that baby, and it turned out okay. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's motivation. <laughs> I love my Bob used to say, you know, I did my best with you guys and I didn't know what I was doing. Right. <laughs> so no one tells like, you what's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I know, at least the second child, if you, you're brave enough to do that, you have a little bit more experience and firsthand knowledge. But yeah, it's true. It's like nobody knows what they're doing, but we're doing it. Well, and, you know, and on a serious note, if if you really do step back and think about it, it is a risk that we take blindly without thinking a whole lot about it. It's just something we decide we want to do, and we do it without knowing what the outcome may be. So maybe it does serve as motivation for us when we want to take another risk in life. We asked, when Courtney and I started our business back in 2004, uh, we were nervous because, again, nobody in our world had really done it before, None, nobody in our immediate world. But then we started doing our research and finding out all these people who were achieving on the dreams that we wanted to strive towards, we asked ourselves a really powerful question. If not us, then who? You know, if it can be done and people are doing it, why can't we do it? And that's a really great question for anybody to ask. Like if it is being done by people with similar backgrounds, by similar experiences, and they're achieving success on it, why can't you? <laughs> and so if not you, then who? I always bring that up when I when I make presentations, and I do have something about that. I'll say, why does one person go on Oprah or another person on the Today Show or someone else write the book? And the answer always is because that person believed that he or she could. And that's really the seed where everything can grow from. And you, to me, are talking about confidence, and we write about that, too, just having the confidence within yourself. And I love how confidence is researched. It's called you know, in the psychology space, self-efficacy. It's your belief in your ability to do whatever it is you set out to do in the moment that it matters. And it's a skill. And and I always think, too, like if you can't believe in yourself and in the power of your dream, who gets to? These are your dreams. And just to own them, it, I used to live in um, Los Angeles for a bit, and I would talk to friends who were aspiring actors And it was always funny to me, like the ones that you thought perhaps had a chance, they would boldly say, even though they were, you know, working at restaurants and doing what they had to do to get by in the service industry, they would say, like, I want to be an actor. Maybe they'll say it with conviction versus, I guess I'm trying to be an actress or an actor. It just comes across differently. And so you have an opportunity to believe in your dreams and be convicted to them. The book is Bet on You, How to Win with Risk. If you'd like to get more information about Angie and her work, you can visit leadstar.us. Angie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to connect. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue, guaranteed. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue's in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoro, owner of Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, a marketing consultancy and video production company. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the wave to your own success? As Nike says, just do it. Practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. 
And don't forget that you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who make their living off them. But learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially, along with your revenue. If you need help with your video needs, give me a call or visit my website at lamorestrategies.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R strategies.com. This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, where our favorite story to tell is yours. Did you know that smoking is the leading cause of people being diagnosed with lung cancer? Isn't it time for you to quit smoking? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It is not easy for everyone to stop smoking cigarettes. If you are a smoker and want to quit, let these tips help you stop smoking. First, start reducing the amount of cigarettes you smoke each day until you have no more cigarettes left. Let that day be the start of you being a non-smoker for good. Second, change your habit and substitute a cigarette for a water bottle. So you change the hand-to-mouth motion with something healthy. Number three, create a positive affirmation and repeat it a few times each day. For example, I am a non-smoker today and every day. Let good health and thinking about the money you will save as a non-smoker continue to motivate you. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. We cure 80% of children with cancer. Go back 50 years, we were curing 20 to 30%. This is the miracle story of modern medicine. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>